welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week we are T-minus 10 days to David's wedding. We are also just over a week away from the NFL draft and it cannot get here fast enough. This week we've got defensive prospects for days 2 and 3 and whoa Nelly. It was boring as hell sometimes because not all these players are very good. Uh, I mean, we'll get to it with Edge, but man, uh, it was not fun watching a lot of these players. They're it, not good. At one point, I was laying in bed and I was staring at my screen and I was like, God, this is what watching not fun football is like. And it reminded me of watching some of the Jim Tom Sulu shit. Like it just it was just you didn't want to watch it and it wasn't fun, but you had to get through it. <laughs> I don't like to think about those times at all, but I mean, yeah, I see what you're going for there. Yeah. All right. So what are we doing? Well, this week is another in our series of episodes where we're breaking down all of the, well, not all the prospects, but some of the prospects that we think are going to be interesting for the 40, for the 49ers in this year's NFL draft. And we are doing our best to identify day two and beyond options. This week it's defense and we're using our player evaluation framework to help. So as a reminder, what that framework looks at, it looks at athletic profile, production, traits, and positional value. Uh, and so the players that we're going to talk about this week are players that we think the Niners uh, might be interested in or players that intrigue us for one reason or another. They may not be complete prospects. We're talking about days two and three here. So they're, they may be lacking in one of the uh, four categories that we've discussed, but we think there's something about that player that makes them a fit or the 49ers have expressed interest in some way, shape, or form. So there's probably going to be something missing. And with some players, there's going to be a lot missing. <laughs> but these are players that we think you should have your that that your ear should be burning for uh, during the NFL draft. Definitely. And we tried to look at, too, I think, you know, this is one of the things we talked about last week is finding guys that it's better to do, like, have one really good trait, I, I think, in most instances, than it is to just be, like, kind of okay across Man. the board, right? So we may be looking at guys that... Are, are very strong athletes, but haven't put it together on the field um, and, and produced at a high level for one reason or another. Or uh, the opposite end of that, guys that have produced um, consistently throughout their college careers, but don't have that high-end athletic upside that you um, typically like to see from your first-rounders. So those type of players, uh, I think, comprise the bulk of the players that we're going to talk about. And just for shits and giggles, we're also including players with names that are nearly impossible for us to pronounce. Oh, my God. I was looking at the, uh, the these edge players. It's going to be impossible. All right. Kick uh, us off, David. Who's the first edge player that we're going to look so, at? So the first one that we're going to look at uh, is Hercules Mataafa from Washington State. Um, some context with him. So, again, we're going to look at position ranks in the PFF draft guide and also um, when they have them, the inside the pylon draft guide. We're going to look at their spark score if we've got it and then also some production. So with him... He is the sixth-ranked edge player for PFF. Um, don't have a positional rank on him from ITP, however. Not a great athlete, at least with how he tested, right? I think we see some stuff on tape there that maybe is a little bit better, but a 20th percentile spark score, low end, right? Like, that's really flirting with that line is, does he have enough athleticism to really, you know, does, does he check the box, I guess, right? Is, is it good enough uh, to meet the threshold for what you need? He's right on that border. Um, production, though... Good. 84.8 uh, pass rush grade last season, 87.6 in 2016. So, you know, good, solid production for two years, even though he was playing mostly from the interior when he was at Washington State. So why are we interested in this person? Because, I mean, ultimately you think, OK, 20 percent spark guy. He doesn't really fit 
the profile of someone that you want at the edge position. Honestly, it's because his production on tape is much better than what his uh, than what his score really kind of what what it shows you. When you look at some, when you when you look at Mata, I'm gonna mess up his name already. When you look at Mata Afa, Hercules, man, yeah, that just Hercules, Hercules. That's what I think of, right? So when you think of Hercules, he's incredibly fast off the ball, and we do need speed, especially off of the edge. And this is a player that played a lot on the interior, but it really projects to the edge. He what he weighed in at somewhere near two, like north of two fifty, right? Like two fifty two, two fifty four, somewhere in that area. Yeah. While there is a trend towards smaller interior defenders. I don't think this is what they mean. So you're you're likely going to put him out on the edge. And despite his low spark score, he's very, very fast off the ball. Oftentimes he looked off sides, but he just wasn't. And, and that is a good skill to have. And he was able to do that over and over and over again. The problem was... If those first few steps didn't win, then, you know, he let people get into his chest. You know, it was a little difficult for him to get off blocks. Didn't we just didn't see him bend a whole hell of a lot. But he was still a very disruptive interior player when he especially when he got a clean shot on a ball carrier. And and that was exciting. I mean, it was some of the more exciting hits that I was able to see of the players that we covered. So overall, I think to myself, well, there there are some tools there. The problem is, you know, what 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 is it going to cost you to get those tools on your roster? I don't know that I would expend, you know, a, a, certainly not a second round pick. Um, you, once you start getting into like the third, fourth round, maybe you can begin to justify it. But I just I don't I don't see I don't see the kind of like, oh, eye popping kind of performance that would make me want to spend a lot of draft capital on someone like Hercules. Yeah. And you have to imagine that he's going to need a little bit of time, right, to to make that transition kind of like a. Uh, a really poor man's version of what we talked about with Solomon Thomas last year, right? Where again, primarily an interior player at college, but you do see some things uh, that could make you think that he might have some success on the edge, right? But it's going to take some time because he doesn't have the reps. Solomon Thomas didn't have the reps on the edge. Uh, You know, who knows if he'll even, I I feel like at this point they might just be better off saying, Hey, we're going to move him to the interior. Who knows if that'll, that same thing will happen with Hercules. So I think you have to, Give him some time. It's unlikely that he's going to be an impact player right away. Um, but, you know, that's what it is. This is the type of player right now that is in this edge class, maybe one of the more intriguing options in the mid rounds. And it's just like there, there's even still a lot of question. Marks and you have to remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how this edge class was not a it wasn't a great edge class. It was ranked as one of the weakest positions overall in the draft. And and this is the result of that. The net result of that is that the the sixth best prospect in this draft, you're thinking, eh, I don't know if I want to spend a lot of draft capital on him. Um, and it's not like his tape was horrible. I mean, he had a he had a really good pass grade in in 2016, 84.8. In 2016, it was a little better. Uh, and so there there are some tools there, but it wasn't like it was a get that tool on my roster right now. All right, next up, um, the most impossible name that we're going to try to pronounce oh, dude, today. Give me give me a crack uh, at it. Um, I'm just gonna go with Obo. We're gonna we're gonna Obo. Uh, I'm gonna I, go with Obanaya Okoronkwo. Okoronkwo. Yeah, uh, Obanaya yeah. Okoronkwo. Because like Chris Obanaya, he played. He sure. was he played for Texas. He's got the OG in the front of his name, so it's like a silent G. Oban. Uh, uh, I'm already screwing up. Something. <laughs> <laughs> Obo, uh, Oklahoma edge rusher. Uh, he is fifth in the PFF edge rankings ninth for inside the pylon um athleticism wise he's kind of gotten a tag as being as more of a physically limited player but really tested well um has an 85th percentile spark score um so tested well i think pretty much across the board in, in a lot of the events at the combine pro day um from a production standpoint 
also really pretty good. I uh, was the second highest graded power five edge defender this last year with an 87.5 overall grade and has two years of really solid pass rush grades there uh, at Oklahoma. So Oscar, again, why are we interested in this player? So I actually like Okoronko a little better than I like Hercules. And while the rap on him is that he's, that he's physically limited, I didn't really see that on tape. So this was a player that had really, really, really good inside move. And he generated pressure with an inside move once every 19.7, almost 20 pass rush snaps, which ranked him sixth in the nation, which is really, really good. He had a fantastic inside move. And his power shows up on tape. I mean, this is a strong dude. He had solid play strength. And and overall, the way that he played the game made me think that he could also be versatile for the for the 49ers as well, because he played some off-ball linebacker at Oklahoma. And I mean he I mean he had to. This it's the Big 12. You you run the spread. He he was overhang at a couple times. And and so this is someone who could fit both the the Sam that comes down to Leo. And that kind of versatility, I think, is something that the Niners could really leverage based on the type of defensive scheme that they run. So I thought that his overall power in game was a little better and a bit more refined than uh, Hercules. He's got more pass rush moves than I remember seeing for a lot of the guys that we watched Um, because he had he had a pretty good spin move. He had an outside rush move. um, He had a bull rush. He, He was able to put some things together to the point where it's like, yeah, this is where I would spend some capital to see what happens. Yeah, he's got some of those, you know, a little bit more refined skills because he doesn't have that great like burst and bend off the edge. Right. So he's not um, somebody like Landry who can win consistently with that speed rush on the outside. And you just don't have to show your other moves all that often. Um, You know, with him, it's more that's what he has to rely on to be able to get to the passer. Kind of reminds me a little bit of like an Elvis Dumerville type player. So Dumerville also undersized, um, also not as much of an outside speed rusher. You know, he's more of a guy that is speed to power. He he really uses that kind of undersized frame to his advantage and, and gets leverage on these big tackles and is able to get underneath their pads, kind of drive them backward, win with the bowl, the inside moves. I think that's, you know, his kind of uh, definitely very best case scenario as a passer. I think right now, maybe a little bit better of a run defender, um, which, you know, could make sense for that Sam position. Like which is which is what makes sense to me. And, you know, I, I think that while I would love for Eli Harold to be good at football, I don't know that he's going to be long for the 49ers. And so you have to start thinking about planning for what that looks like. And while the the Sam, the, the player that plays the Sam linebacker role is is not going to be a starter. They're not going to play more than, you know, hopefully 30% of the snaps. But if you're starting Sam also has some pass rushing abilities and they can kind of either be in relief or actually generate some pressure from that position, all of a sudden you're gaining some real value from that roster spot, which I think in today's NFL you really need. Definitely. If if all of a sudden that player can be somebody that plays closer to 50% of the snaps because they right. can be used in a rotation in nickel situations and actually have some pass rush ability, um, I think definitely that's somebody that has a little bit more value. Yeah, you're not saying that like, oh, we're good. We don't need to draft somebody at Sam because we've got Eli Harold there, right? Like he's, right. he's okay. Like he's had some flashes here and there, right? Yep. But you're you're looking to upgrade there if you can if you have a player on your board that you think is a, is a good fit and it's it's crazy to to think but your your production on a person at basis in college actually translates somewhat to the NFL PFF has done a lot of really really good work in terms of projecting you know what collegiate things translate to the NFL and that's the thing that more often than not uh, translates. It's just yeah, basically of basically of all of the data that we've been able to look through so far. Uh, you know, George and Eric on the analytics team have done a great job at this. Um, but basically, pass rush grade 
is the thing that most heavily translates from college to the pro. So, um, you know, that's why we're kind of mentioning that uh, quite a bit throughout all these edge players. Like that's something if you produce well at the college level, like that bodes well for your opportunity to translate to the NFL. And when you look at Okoronkwo, his he was the second highest graded power five edge defender this past season, and which is good as an overall grade. But when you look at his pass rush grade, those were also solid as well. And so this is a player that when you're thinking of taking a chance in a weak edge class, you are not only getting some positional versatility, but you're also getting someone who's produced at a high level in a power five school. And so uh, overall, I think of, of the edge players that are outside of that first round, Harold Landry Chubb area, this is the guy that kind of excites me the most of a non exciting class. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's fair. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I mean, he's again, it's, it's hard to find something like exceptional, right? I think. Sure. Um, I will we'll save this for the end. Let's I'm trying to, to find game. a reason, David. I'm trying to find a reason it's, to be excited. It's hard. I'm not excited. I'm even doing it for a sooner. Like that's 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 something. <laughs> that's something. So let's get uh, to the next God. edge player, and that's uh, Kimoko Kemoko Kimo Kimoko. I'm gonna go Kimoko Kimoko Ture from Rutgers. Uh, context on Kimoko Ture. Well, his PFF position rank is seventh among edge players. His ITP inside the pylon position rank is eleventh. And they gave him a score of 7.0, which as a reminder, is someone that ITP believes can be a good starter that you can win with and that they should compete for a role uh, a role or a starting position. They may be an immediate contributor. That's actually the same exact score that they gave uh, Okoronko as well. So he has had an official visit with the 49ers. So this is someone the 49ers are somewhat interested in. And while having an official visit doesn't necessitate that they will or won't get drafted. Generally speaking, because I think last year we drafted three players that we had an official visit with. Uh, yeah, so it was Foster, um, Witherspoon. Akello Witherspoon, and, um, oh man, who was the other one? Uh, Kittle. Kittle. Kittle, that's right. Um, so it's one of those things where it's not necessarily predictive or indicative. It's just something to note because it's they want to do some more homework on them. What what is uh, Ture like as an athlete? Well, he doesn't have a spark score. He injured his hamstring running the forty yard dash at the combine, but he is a taller, lankier player. He's got long arms, and at least on tape, he shows pretty good athleticism. From a production standpoint, he's relatively limited in terms of playing time over his career. He played just north of eleven hundred snaps during his four years at, Rus- at Rutgers, and his best pass rushing grades came in twenty fourteen and twenty fifteen but none of which have been at a very, very high level in terms of personal production. So, David, why the hell are we interested in Kamoko Ture from Rutgers? I think in this edge class, if you've got a guy with some decent length, which he has, he's got, uh, you know, 33 and a half inch arms, I think, something like that. So decent length, you know, with a with a long frame there. Trent Balky feels a little something. <laughs> he's got some tingling uh, his jinglies. When you yeah, say little, numbers little, like that, little twitching in his pants. Um, <laughs> you combine that with some bend, and and I think that's you know enough to be interested in a, in, a, in an otherwise poor class. Is so, that really the bar that we're setting? We're setting. Dude, that's like, it. I'm I'm telling you, long I, arms and I've a little bend. Struggled so hard to find anything positive to say about like most all these guys. Um, a pipe cleaner, a pipe cleaner, a little bit of bend. So and think, some length yeah. would get would get us would get us excited in this edge class. Uh, I mean, he's. I think this is a guy that that is very much a project, right? And you're kind of hoping that he can develop into more of a situational pass rusher. Um, that's mostly what he was at Rutgers. Like he didn't uh, play a ton of run snaps, so 
you know, he wasn't really a full-time player, even though he played in all four seasons that he was there. Again, you mentioned the the limited number of snaps, just over 1,100 over four years. And so, uh, yeah, it's hard to, to take a guy that, you know, wasn't a full-time player in college and then project him to turn into a full-time player at the NFL level. Like, hey, crazy shit happens, I guess. But you're really, at this point, taking a player that has some athletic traits that are intriguing and and that you hope that you can develop, right? So you're taking, this is one of those guys that fits more of the athlete that hasn't put it together from a production standpoint because his grades are kind of all over the place. You know, it's weird. Like his best grades came in his freshman, sophomore years, um, you know, took a step back in the junior, senior season. So he doesn't fit that nice linear progression that you like to see from, from college players coming out. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think this is a guy that you're looking at like day three, more than likely, um, that if you need edge help in a bad way, like he's a project that has some tools that you might be able to work with. Yeah. And this is one of those guys that very much fits the mold of, you know, hopefully he can do that one thing well, and you can repeat that one thing over and over. And that is, you know, utilize his frame and bend around the edge. And that's what the Niners need, I think, as a complementary skill set right now. So Kamoko Ture from Rutgers, uh, not super exciting, but let's get to Duke Ejiofor, Ejiofor. These, sure. We're on a streak with these Dude, names. These man. names are rough. I hope we don't draft any of these dudes <laughs> just so I don't have to try to pronounce their names consistently. Duke Ejiofor from Wake Forest. I'm really happy he's not from Duke. So the context on uh, Duke is that he is the eighth ranked edge player for PFF, and he is the tenth ranked edge player from inside the pylon. His score equally is at seven, which is a starter you can win with and may compete for a starting role. His athleticism, similarly, it, I feel like no one tested this year. No one's got a complete spark score. It's, yeah, it's always real. something. A lot of guys missing like just the 40, so it's like missing one event so you can't get yeah. the full composite. But yeah, so. yeah. so Duke has, um, he doesn't have a spark score, but he does show athleticism on tape. His production, he his pass rushing productivity is actually just below Harold Landry. His for, It ranks 45th in the nation. Landry was 44th. And he had three years of solid grading at 82 or higher. So he's been consistently good, if not, but hasn't ever really been great. So, David, why the hell are we interested in Duke other than trying to pick the most difficult names for us to pronounce? <laughs> so I think the, the thing that sticks out most with him um, from a tape standpoint is probably his hand usage. Like, uh, I, I think he consistently is able to win in that way. He he's, continues to use his hands. So he has a good, I think, plan as a pass rusher, right? And, and if you... Listen to people talk about edge, especially, I think um, you talk about their pass rush plan, right? And that's, do they have answers to what the tackles are throwing at them, right? So some guys, they just have their one move. I'm doing this no matter what the tackle does, right? I'm going to this outside move because this is all I got. It's Um, the equivalent of you picking the wide receiver you're going to throw to when you pick a play in Madden. (laughs) And then irrespective of the coverage, you just mash the button to bullet it to that dude. Right, you, you've right. been there. I've been there. It happens. I mean, I was a great Madden player, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Hashtag um, nanoblitz. Uh, so with with him, though, is what you're you're looking for ideally from those rushers, right? And having a pass rush plan, it means that when the tackle sets wide, right? So they're worried about the speed. They they're really looking to get outside quickly. That you have a plan to counter that back to the inside, right? Or or if a tackle's set, say you're a really good shoulder, right? So having a plan of how you're going to attack the tackle, I think that's something that he's good at. And you mentioned it a little bit with the production, right? He's somebody that I think has just been a solid player. He gets consistent pressure, had multiple pressures um, in every single game this year, except for one, I believe. Um, 
but never really dominates, right? So he's kind of, he's good, checks kind of each box. Like, okay, he's a pretty good run defender. He's a pretty solid pass rusher. Um, he's got good size. Like, I think he's maybe a guy, and this is the thing that makes it actually tough for me to really think that the Niners will be terribly interested in him, is I think he fits more in their defense with what would be the Solomon Thomas role currently, where he would play on the strong side uh, in base as your defensive end and then be a guy that is maybe a little bit better as a rusher when you kick him down inside. I just don't know that there's room on the roster for another one of those type of players, right? So he's maybe the guy of this group here um, that was the most consistently productive that maybe probably maybe the one that I would take the highest out of uh, just about all of them. Um, but I just don't think that he fits all that well. with Yeah, the Niners. I, I would say that to me, I was inc- I was very impressed by his hand usage. There were several snaps that he won simply because he was able to get the tackles hands off of him really, really quickly. Um, he didn't. And, and I think that to to the point we've been trying to make over the last couple of episodes is we know that great hand usage wins in the NFL. And that's not a skill that the team is going to have to teach him. And so if you're looking for someone to come in, especially if you can get him in, you know, in the third or fourth round, some places where the next player we're going to cover has been mocked, then I think he's a better prospect than some of the other players because you're like, all right, you know what? Just you do you. You swipe those hands away. You get clean. You get after the quarterback in whatever situation we put you in. And we know that that skill translates. And I'd rather draft someone who can do something like that well than someone like, you know, we're going to talk about Josh Sweat here in a minute that that just doesn't show that he can do that at a consistent basis. All right, well, let's get to it. Josh Sweat is going to be from Florida State is the last edge defender that we're going to talk about this week. Um, So from a context standpoint, we have uh, some very different positional ranks. um, And I think we'll get to kind of why that is. But PFF has him as the 16th ranked edge rusher. ITP has him all the way up at seven, though. Um, Athleticism wise, this is Josh Sweat's where he's making his money. This is why he's going to really be drafted uh, probably a little bit higher than he should go. 95th percentile spark athlete. Uh, hit that lovely 6.953 cone. Hit the sub 7.3 cone that you'd like to really see from your your edge rushers and, and sh- you know hopefully showing that ability to bend around and, and win with the outside rush. Uh, from a production standpoint, though, not great. Um, his peak pass rushing grade was only 76.8, uh, which came just this past season. Also known as not great. Not great. Yeah. Like, eh, it's pretty, eh. Uh, He just never dominated in the way that you would really hope for for a player with his physical tools. Um, You know, I think he was solid in in the run game as well. 20th in run stop percentage last season. Uses length, I think, a little bit better there right now than he does as a rusher. But, uh, yeah, tell us why are we interested in, in looking at Josh Sweat? Well, I think you, you mentioned a lot of it, and a lot of it has to revolve around his athleticism. His athleticism is off the charts good. 90, 95th percentile spark athlete, sub-7 three-cone time. Those are the things you want out of your edge rusher. The problem with Josh Sweat was that you didn't see that really on tape. On tape, you don't see the kind of bend that you would expect from someone with a sub-7 three-cone. And for someone that is, you know, you're, you're kind of hoping the athleticism shines— well, it should have shined in college, and it did at times. He had some pretty decent speed to power where he was able to get into the tackle and then power through. He did not bend around the edge at all. I, I don't remember seeing one snap where he truly beat with speed and got around the edge and you know was the guy on the motorcycle in a race and kind of you know touched his finger on the ground and then got to the quarterback. That's not how he wins. And, and so I couple that with his really low production and, you know, I think this is the guy that everyone's going to be super hyped about. 
and someone's going to be like, he's a steal. And it was like, oh my God, that they, they're going to get an A grade. He's such a great value. And then in three years, we're going to wonder like why he hasn't broken through. Yeah. And, and it's because he just can't put it all together. Um, it's tough. You know, I think he's, he's a guy too, that hits a lot of the thresholds athletically that, you know, people like to see from the edge rushers. I know like he's one of the few guys, um, that guys like justice Mosqueda has, I think is one of his few force players in uh, in this year's class. I know, uh, Mike Renner from PFF, uh, you know, thinks that sweat like has an opportunity to, to maybe break through among the guys that are, you know, not basically Landry and Chubb in this class. Um, it's tough, man. I'll, I'll tell you right now where I'm at with this edge class, Harold Landry or Sia. Like, I'm just yeah. not... Interested. Presuming that Chubb is not available because I think, like, those two... I mean, even then, so if, if you're looking at when you would draft Chubb, right, it would be with that... In, in right. some scenario where Landry gets drafted as the first edge guy off the board and, and you're looking at taking Chubb there at nine, at that point, I'm looking for one of those other top defenders uh, in that spot. So for Sweat specifically, I wanted to spend a bit more time on him just because he's a very, very trendy pick. He's the trendy guy. There's, there's an article from Football Outsiders about Saxier, and Saxier is this projection score that tries to basically do two things. One, give you a rating, but then also give you a projected number of sacks through their first, you know, kind of five seasons. And Saxier, the inputs into this formula are their projected draft position, uh, an explosion index, so basically their athleticism, the prospect score on the three-cone drill, and a metric called SRAM which basically stands for sack rate as modified. Um, and it's their per game sack productivity. They also factor in passes defensed and some medical stuff. So basically they try and put everything into a bag and give you a rating and give you projected sacks. Their top sack seer prospects sorted by number of sacks that they project through five seasons. Number one, Harold Landry. Number two, Marcus Davenport. Number three, Bradley Chubb. Uh, number four, some other name I can't pronounce, Nwosu from USC. Sam Hubbard, Lorenzo Carter, Okoronkwo, and then Josh Sweat. And because of Josh Sweat's uh, projected draft, which is somewhere in the third, fourth round, they consider him the highest value. So would you think that Sweat is a good value in the third, fourth round if the board falls and we can't get Landry because someone picks him or we trade back or whatever the case may be, still need an edge, highly athletic guy, available in rounds three, four, it, do you think that's a valuable area for the Niners to go after someone like Sweat? No. I mean, I would just rather go after a player that is actually, like, good already, like, in three, <laughs> the third, fourth round. Um, I mean, I think that's... You're still looking for players that you're expecting to contribute relatively early, I think. Fair. Like, they're going to be probably role players, right? You think of guys last year um, that are more... I mean, these were even later than third, fourth round, but guys like George Kittle or Trent Taylor, right? They're not going to come out and be stars that carry your offense, but they are very valuable role players. I think you're still looking for those guys. In, in, our, in our previous roster eval model, they're the fringe tier two players, right? They're between yeah. that tier two and tier four where they're not quite developmental, but they are filling a, a role that you can help build your roster around. So they, especially in the third, fourth round, that's what you're going after. I think in the context of Saxier, I, I completely agree. I don't think that's what's a value because you look at the players that are right around Josh Sweat and you have Okoronkwo and Duke, Ejiofor, both players that may not have the same athletic profile, but because of their production, are ranked similar. And I, especially in the third or fourth round, am going to take a player that's proven that they can do certain things very, very well, especially at the collegiate level, like hand usage or speed to power or 
better as a run defender than I am going to take a guy solely on potential that early. I feel like Josh Sweat's a guy you take in like the fifth or sixth round with that kind of athletic profile, but not in the third or fourth. I think that, you know, and not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I think the him ranking highly in Saxier is uh, kind of a indicative of your model can really only be as good as your inputs. And the things that they're using for production um, just flat out like aren't as detailed. I mean, like when sacks are your go-to, like the only thing you really go to, like maybe you have tackle for loss, which isn't always like college stats, man, like NFL already, like some of their official stats like are iffy. Tackle numbers are very iffy. They get those wrong all the yeah. time. Lots of stuff like that. College is even worse. And so when those are the only sort of inputs that you can have in there, um, it's just not really that great. I mean, he's a guy that had 18 sacks in in college, but not a ton of overall pressures, right? And so I think that's where you, you look at something like yeah. using those numbers compared to using, uh, you know, say PFF pass rush grade, which is going to look at all their pressures, how they got those pressures, right? It's going to discount the ones that are unblocked, give them more credit for ones where they beat two defenders or something like that, right? Well, and so we know that there's more that, context in there. We know that sacks specifically are not a stable metric year to year. Um, and, and so that, that if that is your primary input, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, and I think also part of the input here that, that project the draft position, I feel like that's almost the feedback loop. It's like people say you're going to get drafted high. And so you feed that into the model and that gives you a higher sexier rating, which makes you seem, you know, like appear higher than you are. Um, so it kind of feeds into the group think a little bit. So it makes perfect sense. I just thought it was, it was interesting because that was, you know, it's a site that we respect. They do some great analytical definitely, work. Definitely. Um, and, and Josh Sweat is definitely, I mean, it's basically like, well, if we're not going to get an edge up top, we should just wait for Sweat in the third. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. I, I understand the appeal. Totally get it. Uh, just not super on board. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. All right. So that's the edge group. Um, not going to lie, man. It was, it was a rough group to watch. It was not yeah. nearly as exciting as some of the players from last year um, or watching like, you know, good football. Yeah, very, very different from last year's class. I mean, uh, I, again, um, for me in this edge class, you're taking Harold Landry at nine or you're punting this till next year. Yeah, man, it was uh, this this class was rough. This not class, good. this class was rough. Not good. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's get to outside cornerback. And we are splitting cornerback into outside and inside because that's really the the new world of the NFL. You're either an outside corner or you're an inside, you know, kind of pass defender. So that's, I think, probably heretofore is how you're going to hear us describe pass defenders when you get to the secondary. So let's get to our first one. That's going to be Isaiah Oliver. Thank you for the names, by the way. Isaiah's parents, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Oliver. Uh, thank you for for naming your child something that us lowly podcast hosts can pronounce. And it just it's, uh, it's, it's so better. Sad. It's better for everyone. Uh, all right. So uh, the PFF position rank on Isaiah Oliver is sixth overall. His ITP position rank is fifth. Now, PFF and ITP don't differentiate between slot and, and outside or interior and outside. So when we give you these position ranks, it is overall for cornerbacks, whether or not they're going to be better for the interior of the defense or the outside of your defense. So just keep that in mind as we talk about these ranks. Now, Isaiah Oliver doesn't have a spark score, but he does have the size, length, and athleticism that the 49ers like at the position. He has the largest wingspan amongst cornerbacks in this draft class. And you think to yourself, all right, so... They're they're salivating at his athletic profile, and guess what? His production matches. He's improved in every season, so he's given you that linear progression that scouts love to see. His peak coverage grade of 85 in 2017 uh, was, well, his best. So he's improved every single year, 
and he had 20 plays on the ball over the past two years. Three picks, 17 defense passes. That's the same number that Akella Witherspoon had over his final two years. And of course, the Colorado connection. So, David, why are we interested in Isaiah Oliver? I think it's a lot of the same reasons that we were interested in Akella Witherspoon. I think um, up front, Akella Witherspoon is a much better athlete. I think his movement skills are much better, and, and that helps uh, you know, in, in his ability to defend the underneath stuff and just change direction you know, is, is a, a lot more smooth with Akello than it is with Oliver. But there are a lot of the other similar traits there that you like. To, it starts with the length. Um, you know, that's both up at the line of scrimmage and your ability to get your hands on guys and, and reroute them and, and kind of get that jam up at the line. Um, and then also it's the ability to still contest the ball or get your hands on the ball. Even when the receiver has a step on you, you see a number of plays. And, and this was true for a Keller Witherspoon as well. Um, a number of plays where the receiver gets behind him on a deep route, right? Whether that's a go route, a post route, something like that, something deep down the field. And it looks like he's beat, but then all of a sudden, like right at the last minute, he's able to get his hands out there, knock it away. Um, had, had even a couple of plays where he's able to get a pick in that situation. And that's um, where and that's where your length is important because yeah. it, we we oftentimes I think we forget why it is that you want a long corner and why that wingspan matters. And it's because that extra inch or two of wingspan allows you to still make a play on the ball, even if you're not entirely in phase. It gives you a margin of error that you don't see with more compact corners. Definitely. And, and you see him defend the routes too. Like we've talked uh, in the past about, okay, what, what do corners in this scheme when they're playing that cover three and they're up there impressed like they like to be, um, w- what's important for corners to be able to defend in this, right? And, and we talk about the deep ball a lot. Like you have to be able to shut down the deep ball, which is that go route down the sideline. But then you're also looking at a few other common routes the corner's really going to be responsible for. And those are the comeback routes, you know, kind of the shorter hitches. And then I think they still need to be able to play the slant. I think that's ideal because you're really not going to get your underneath defenders in there most of the time. Uh, get, get them out there quick enough to be able to make a play on that slant. So they still got to respect that as an inside breaking route. On those four routes this past season, uh, Oliver allowed just seven receptions on 27 total targets, which is a completion rate of 26%. So was very effective defending those routes last year. Um, and yeah, you just see those traits that you know the scheme really prefers uh in in their cornerbacks and uh i think yeah the the fact that he's improved every season like he just kind of checks all the boxes right he's a good again not quite as good as akella witherspoon from an athlete standpoint um but you don't have like a a lot of huge question marks with his game so is isaiah oliver someone though that that really is in consideration for the niners second round pick because uh, okay so let's say let's say the niners draft in in our perfect world they draft harold landry at nine they and they don't make any trades. They don't have a pick until the end of the second round. Is Isaiah Oliver, based on what you've described, a type of player that's going to be around that late? So I think one thing is a lot of things that we love about him. Not every team is going to love, right? Um, not every team is going to have a scheme that suits what he does well. And so I think you will see some teams that won't be as interested in. We talked about this with wide receiver a little bit, and then it was really hard to kind of project where guys were going to fall because you have all of these different types of receivers, right? And there's not a clear consensus at the top. I think with corner, you generally see Denzel Ward and Joshua Jackson as like the, the most common names you're going to see in like the top three, right? In cornerback rankings. Yeah. So but then after that, it's kind of you a muddle move them, But yeah, it gets all muddled up after that. And so 
would I be surprised if if Oliver was like a mid first rounder? Not at all. Um, but would I be that surprised if he slipped to the end of the second round because teams preferred some of the maybe the smaller, more agile corners? Um, you know, a little bit earlier. No, that wouldn't be that surprising either. Yeah, so definitely someone to to keep an eye on. And I know that there have been some folks in my mentions that have been like, you know, Isaiah Oliver is the best corner in this class. And I, I don't know that I would go that far, but he definitely is a scheme fit for what the 49ers want to do. Yeah. And as such, he is a very, very attractive player if he's able to last to whenever the Niners pick, whether that be higher in the second round or later in the first because of a trade or if they stand pat at their second round position. So let's get to the next corner in this group, and that's going to be Mr. Carlton Davis out of Auburn. So the context on Carlton Davis uh, is not that he can dance well because he was in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's that he is the ninth-ranked player on PFF's board when it comes to corners, and ITP ranked him as their seventh-ranked player. Now, they gave him a score of 7.49, which puts him right at that top end of the can-be-a-good-starter level. Uh, and someone that you can that will compete for a starting role. So the both ITP and PFF are fairly high on them. They have them ranked about the same. This is someone who had a surprisingly like average spark score. He does have a spark score, uh, and it was in the fifty sixth fifty sixth percentile. He was a thirty second ranked corner in this draft class, which puts him right in the same ballpark as Minka Fitzpatrick. Now his production, he allowed just forty nine point one percent of passes thrown his way to be caught in twenty seventeen. And he gave up just 361 receiving yards all year. So, David, why the hell are we interested in Carlton Davis? I like this uh, this note that you left in here. So, uh, we're interested because he's physical with a capital F. Um, <laughs> you like that? I, like that. I, I felt like that was appropriate <laughs> for his game. <laughs> uh, it's good. And, and I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great way to describe it. So, I think he is somebody, you know, a lot like Oliver and a lot of the corners that we're going to be talking about on the outside, right? Bigger, more physical players. I think he really relies on the physicality more than somebody like Oliver does, right? I think there's a little bit more, maybe more, um, you know, athleticism to Oliver's game there. He really wants to get his hands on you. Um, I think he does have pretty good feet and press. Like he stays pretty patient um, and, and is able to, you know, kind of wait until the receiver declares before he's really kind of opening his hips up. Um, and then of course, you know, the length, why, again, why is that important? You, you want to see him contest passes, right? Get his hands on passes, for me, why he is a little bit lower than somebody like Oliver is because I didn't think he was quite as good with the ball in the air. So he does a really good job of contesting, right? If he's in position, he's going to make it a tough catch for the receiver. But I thought there were some plays there where he probably could have finished the play and either got the pass defense or maybe made a play on the ball uh, and, and get a pick there that he didn't. And he ended up still, still gives up a reception. It's a tough reception, but a reception nonetheless, right? I think that was kind of the big area of separation that I had between somebody like him and somebody like Oliver. Yeah. Ultimately when I, when I watched his film, I just thought, man, he beats people up. He just flat out beats people up. He's a large dude. Auburn, by the way, side note had another cornerback. Um, I forget his name. I looked it up. Um, number 12, uh, who is huge. He's like, he's bigger than Davis was. Um, it was like, where are they getting these cornerbacks, man? These guys are like linebackers. Yeah. Dude. So he beats people up when he tries to cover them to the point where I was like, is he going to get flagged a lot in the NFL? You know, like that, that was a thought that went through my head when I'm watching his tape because he is, he is legit. He's a, he's the cornerback that Singletary would love. Like, this is the kind of way that he plays the game. And, and so overall, man, I'm immediately out on him after that. comment. <laughs> Shane, every forget everything I just said. I'm out on 
Carlton Davis. Man, Singletary <laughs> no, really draws that ire out of you, huh? <laughs> Jesus. But but yeah, I, I think I really, really like him as a prospect. I think he could fit really, really well. Um, he is a very physical player, and that's and that's my one takeaway for someone like Carlton Davis. And um, I think when it comes to you know the the cornerback position overall, already Oliver and Davis excite me way more than just about anyone who did from the edge group. Definitely, I think the, I think this cornerback class uh, has has a lot more to offer than the edge class. Um, next guy on the list, Quentin Meeks from Stanford. He's somebody that. Because he went to Stanford, you know, uh, uh, 49ers, he had a, was at the local pro day uh, today for the 49ers. A lot of people are interested in him. Um, the 16th ranked corner from PFF um, did not get a, a, a ranking from ITP, however, so he wasn't on their board. Um, for, from an athleticism standpoint, again, taller, longer guy, 6'1", 209, moves well for a guy his size. Um, the only thing we're missing from him is a 40 time, but he tested really well in all the other drills. So the jumps, the change of direction drills. So that's a good mark for, again, explosiveness. You like the vertical leaping ability because that helps him challenge passes down the field. Uh, and then, of course, the change of direction is important for cornerbacks. Production standpoint, 83.9 coverage grade last year. So pretty good. Not good, not great. Um, Oscar, why are we interested in Quentin Meeks? Well, he definitely fits a profile, but I, when I watched this tape, I feel like he looked like someone that had the fluidity and the ability to really grow into a really good press man cover corner. And when you look at what he was able to do while at Stanford, he, I feel like he did fairly well in, in, in press man coverage. Um, he, I didn't see too many snaps where he was in straight up like zone. And so I, I couldn't necessarily say like, oh yeah, he's going to be, you know, great in zone or whatever, but that's not the kind of corner that we're going after. He was still a little raw in man coverage. He was out of phase a couple of times, but he was also similarly physical, not if not as physical as Davis um, and not as he doesn't get a capital F. No, he does not get a capital F. He gets a lowercase F and he probably still gets it with like a pH and not an F, you know, just like he's right between that F and pH line. But that's good. good to know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a line there. Uh, so he he's someone though that I feel like could very quickly develop into someone that could be a, a a decent rotational corner or even a starter if given a couple years of seasoning. I think of someone like a Terrell Brown, not in profile or the way that he plays, but Terrell Brown was someone who was drafted in the fifth round and he sat on the bench and learned a bit and eventually became a decent starting corner after he got some seasoning in the NFL. And I feel like Meeks based on what I've saw what I've seen on film has both the profile and the ability to after some seasoning be able to be a, a, a pretty decent corner in the league especially for the type of, of scheme that we run um, and you know I'm not too big on this kind of stuff but another Stanford corner Richard Sherman not that I'm drawing a parallel between their success in the NFL but I feel like they would have a bond that they would share and if you're looking for a mentor for a corner that needs some development Richard Sherman another Stanford corner may be your guy so I feel like overall, this is someone, again, I'm not saying that he is better than Davis or Isaiah Oliver, but I really like this game, uh, and I thought that he would be a, a pretty good addition to the Niners. I think it makes sense to look at players like that, too, at the end of this draft in particular, because I think there are a few other names. We're going to get to one more uh, as far as an outside guy, but there are even a few others that, that kind of fit that tall, good length like type of profile, even if they didn't really produce at a high level. I think it may, I mean, this is what Seattle did, right? Consistently for, for a few years there, at least they were able to find guys kind of later in the draft that fit their profile and plug them in at that other cornerback position opposite of Richard Sherman, Sherman, right? They had like a few guys in a row there that 
went on to do terrible things once they left Seattle, but they, they were able to kind of identify players that fit within their system that, that could do a few specific things well. Um, and I think that makes sense for the Niners right now because you look at outside cornerback, and hopefully if things go well, that's not an immediate need, right? You have a Keller Witherspoon at one spot. Hopefully Sherman bounces back from the Achilles injury, and he's able to, to man that other spot, and you're set at outside for 2018. But it makes sense if you have a class that has a lot of guys there that kind of fit that profile, grab one of them at the, you know, in the in later rounds, day three there, and and have them on the bench and be able to develop him. And then maybe two years from now, when Sherman's kind of starting to go down, you have you have somebody kind of readily available to plug in that knows your scheme already. So Yeah, dude, his three cone was six seven two. Like, come on. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, again, all the other six, drills seven, that two, he actually did are really good. A six seven two three cone when you're six one and like I mean, he's listed at like one ninety seven in the PFF draft guide, but I think he's closer to like he tops two oh five. And and so at, that's just I I love everything that's happening with Quentin Meeks. You know, I just wonder yeah, whether or not he was he was two oh nine at the combine is what he weighed in there. For good worth. So great googly moogly. Uh, and he tested that well at, at nearly two ten. I mean, I'm I'm on board. I think that's that's definitely worth like a you know a fifth round pick. Maybe even eh, I don't know fourth round might be too early. But uh, I think when you start looking at that fifth round, that's where I'm going to be staring at Quentin Minks. Although he did say you mentioned this before the show, David, that he said that he thought he was going to be drafted on day two in the second round. Yeah, the pro day, the local pro day for the 49ers today, um, you know, the beat reporters were had some quotes out there. And, and one of them was him. Yeah, that his expectation that would he would go uh, sometime in day three be a little early for me. I don't think he really um, had the production to kind of warrant that sort of draft placement. But um, I think, yeah, once you start getting into that day three range, uh, he's he's a player that could make some sense. Um Let's get to the final corner that we have uh, as an outside guy. It's going to be Tavares McFadden from Florida State. You can't um, mess up that name, David. No, Don't. I know. I almost did. And it was bad. Uh, <laughs> PFF position rank 22. So he's a little bit further down the board there. Um, again, another player that ITP did not have on their board. Um, main reason, honestly, that we're including him here is he had an official visit. So there are a few other players that are that are kind of, again, late, probably day three guys that have that size. Uh, that, that fits the profile they're looking for um, that could be potentially options. But because he was a, he was somebody that had the official visit with the 49ers, we kind of went with him from an athleticism standpoint. Not bad. Um, 67th percentile spark score was the 22nd ranked corner in this class. I don't know that he looked quite that athletic on tape. I think he's more of a kind of straight line, like explosive, did really well in the jumps, really fast in a straight line. Not really that great in some of the other stuff. Um, but pretty good athlete there from a production standpoint. Um, also like not terrible, uh, allowed 47% of passes thrown his way to be caught over his college career. Um, so low catch rate, but there was kind of some boom bust there. So he did give up 11 touchdowns on just 140 targets over his career. Um, however, this past season, uh, you know, again, talking about cornerbacks in this, the system needing to be able to defend the deep ball. Didn't allow a catch longer than 34 yards this past season. So there are a few things there to like. Um, Oscar, what exactly are those? Why are we interested? Honestly, it's mostly the height, weight, and speed. It's just mostly the It's visit. mostly yeah. that. Because honestly, when I, when I look at him on tape, he his change of direction is not great. He probably, of all the players that we watched, he probably has the worst change of direction. He's not a very, he's not a very strong player at the point of attack. I wouldn't say that his play strength is very good. Uh, he, he didn't really, you know, shine in terms of coverage. He's someone that is a, a seventh round when you're looking for a high weight speed guy, 
this is the guy that you draft. Um, he reminded me a lot of Richard Robinson in that he needed to eat a cheeseburger and and put on some weight because he looked a little slight to frame. I mean, he's and a he, little slight. Like Richard Robinson was, was super slight. Like Richard Robinson had ankles yeah. for like, or he had he had wrists for calves. Is, is what it was. Uh, <laughs> that dude was lanky and and little, but he is he's bigger than that. Like but skeleton. he didn't. But he didn't play bigger. He that, yeah. and that's the thing is he didn't, he did not play bigger at all. So you know, at the end of the day. He's he's the high weight speed guy, seventh round, hopefully, and he's not coming up before then. Yeah, I, I, again, I think there's a few other players that are in that range, and I don't know that there's a ton of separation between those guys right now. So, so let's get to interior coverage defenders because this is more of a need than you might think for the 49ers. The Niners are a team that allowed 101.9 passer rating to players lined up in the slot last year. That was 20th in the league. Kawan Williams... I mean, the money, sure, we signed him to a contract, but that money is not huge. He's not a permanent solve there. And Jimmy Ward and Jaquaski Tart, both unrestricted, unrestricted free agents after this year. So it's not like we've got you know, players locked down for four years at this role that are playing at a high level. This is still an area of need for the 49ers. And so when we think of players that are available here, there are three that we want to get to quickly. But they're players that we don't that we just weren't able to find a lot of games on and a lot of film on, so we're not as comfortable putting a, a stake in the ground on some of these. But nevertheless, there are three that we're going to talk about, and the first one is one Mr. Dante Jackson from LSU. He was ranked fairly highly for Pro Football Focus. He was ranked fourth overall. Remembering that's overall corners, not just interior defenders. His athleticism is really, really good. 65th percentile spark athlete. Uh, and as a reminder for those of you who are not super familiar with math, that just means that 65% of the corners are going to be worse athletically than him. His production took a big step forward in 2017. He earned his peak coverage grade of 83.5 this year in 2017, and he allowed just a 48% catch rate and a 50.7 opposing passer rating in slot coverage last year. So, David, why are we interested in a player like Dante Jackson? So with him, so this is he's a little bit different than the type of the other two players that we're going to talk about here, and that he's more of a really good athlete that has kind of more limited production, right? Had that one year, 2017, um, you know, was was really pretty solid, took a big step forward there, um, but didn't really, you know, wasn't really on the map before then. Um, he does have experience in the slot, and that's one of the things that all three of these players have. Uh, and the reason why we want to get there, because you, you have really two players that you're looking at for slot in the NFL, right? Either guys that actually did it at the college level or a lot of times, you know, people want to take just smaller guys that played outside in college and say, OK, you're going to be in the slot. So we didn't want to really look at too many of those type of projections. I think there are maybe a few in this draft that that could happen with. But these are all players that actually spent significant time in the slot. Um, and so I think that's what you have with Jackson. Jackson, kind of like Oliver is a guy that like maybe is more of a target if you are going to trade out of nine and you're looking kind of that mid to late first round range. Um, I think there's maybe an outside chance that he's falls into the second round, like late second round there. But I think probably in order for him to be a, a consideration, some sort of trade is going to have to be involved. Um, but yeah, I think from a change of direction standpoint has what you like to be able to match up with the smaller shiftier corners that, that line up in the slot. Um, and, and that's kind of the big thing that's different from him with him compared to these other two players that we'll talk about. All right. So talk to me a bit about MJ Stewart. Then MJ Stewart's the next interior defender out of North Carolina. He was ranked for pro football focus 11th overall, but he is the, in the 33rd percentile in spark rating. And that's not good. That's definitely not good. 
but his production is kind of what overshadows his, his athleticism. You've got three years of strong production. He graded at 83 or higher in each of the past three seasons with a peak grade of nearly elite, 89.2 in 2015. He allowed a reception in the slot once every 20 coverage snaps, which is the fifth best amongst draft eligible corners. So is his production enough to kind of overshadow his poor athleticism scores? And is that ultimately why we're interested in MJ? Absolutely. Yeah. So these last couple guys, I mean, honestly, let's just kind of lump them together because uh, I think they're fairly, they're similar enough, right? In, in what they're going to be asked to do. So Kaiser White from West Virginia. Best name, by the way, of the ones we've covered so far. Great Kaiser, K-Y-Z-I-R, Kaiser White. Solid and easy to pronounce, which we can appreciate. It's great. Um, so he is, uh, the position ranks a little bit weird with him because he's going to be listed as a safety in most places. So PFF has him as the fourth safety, ITP is six. Um, but really, he was in West Virginia's scheme, played as a slot corner on the wide majority of snaps. And so he's a guy, uh, when you look at both of these players, they actually have the same sort of uh, spark score as well, both in the yeah, 33rd, 33rd percentile, guys. So these are players with uh, more established track records of production. So multiple years of, of good production, um, that are just good enough athletically that you're not concerned, right? It's not down at the bottom. He's not one of the worst athletes in the NFL, um, but is good enough to kind of carry out that role. Um, and they're matchup guys, right? So I think when you look at MJ Stewart, he's a guy that's probably going to be able to match up with uh, more slot receivers, uh, maybe some maybe some tight ends that aren't like overly physical cover backs out of the backfield. So he's going to be somebody that matches up with, I think, smaller receivers in the middle of the field. Um, played all over the uh, North Carolina secondary while he was there. White is going to be a little bit bigger, more physical. So he's a guy that could potentially slot in as like a strong safety type when you're in base, but then still play in the slot, play as like a dollar linebacker uh, when you're in your sub packages there. So he's going to be more of a matchup guy for the bigger tight ends, the, the bigger slot receivers that you would see, like the Larry Fitzgerald types that, that aren't really beating you with movement, but they're beating you with size. He's the, the type of guy that can match up with them. Would you say that Kaiser White is a bit like a, a poor man's Minka Fitzpatrick? And that if you if you end up going with someone like Landry at nine, and, and maybe Kaiser's available there at the late second, you end up getting your your interior slot defender who can kind of play safety and, and cover some bigger players that you didn't get in Fitzpatrick because you ended up going with Landry. Me, I would almost say that, uh, that Stewart MJ is Stewart's a little bit more of that. Yeah. I, I think white's a little bit more physical. I'm not as comfortable with white, uh, manning up like your smaller shiftier slot receivers. I think that's kind of a recipe for disaster for him. Um, he's definitely a more physical guy, uh, really good run defender as well. Like he had, because he played so much cornerback, uh, at PFF, even though for draft purposes is grouped with the safeties was listed as a corner. Cause that's what he played on the majority of snaps had the highest run, uh, defense grade last season among cornerbacks. So he can get in there in the box, mix it up. He's good enough as a cover guy. Cause he spent enough time doing it, um, to, to get like, again, the bigger guys that aren't your Trent Taylors of the world, um, so I think, yeah, they're a little bit different there, but Stewart, I think has that kind of versatility where, uh, he's a little bit more like a Minka light. If you're going to get somebody in the, the kind of mid to, I think he's probably mid round. I think both these guys are probably looking somewhere in the two to four range. Yeah. If we end up in this draft with kind of doubling up on the corner position, whether it be you go inside outside guy or two outside guys, two inside guys, I'd be super happy with that. I, I don't know that I want to expend a bunch of draft capital on on the edge in this 
in this draft? Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. I, again, if you can get your edge guy there at the top, sure, go for yeah. it. But otherwise, I think as far as this draft is concerned, you know, talk about going to where position groups are strong and, and trying to match those areas up with what you have from a need standpoint. I think it makes a lot more sense to address the coverage in this draft class than it does to try to go hard at edge. And what's interesting is I remember a couple of weeks ago, it feels like maybe six weeks ago at this point, we were talking about what your strategy was based on just the strengths of the draft. And you asked me, do you double up on a position that is strong just to kind of increase your hit rate because it is strong? Or do you try and pick the the one or two guys that are good at the top? And I don't know if this is going to go for the rest of the drafts just in general because you're going to have drafts that have different position strengths. But at least in this draft, when it comes to edge versus corner, I am going to stay away from edge. I am going to draft the one guy that has some potential and that could be good and then stay the hell away and and try and fill that need maybe in you know kind of some late free agency or maybe in a trade. I don't know. Something other than draft and edge. Um, and and this... I think Josh Sweat is a perfect example of a player in a poor class that you talk yourself into. So you're sitting there and you're in you know the second and third round and you have a needed edge, right? And you're like, all right, this is the next best guy on our board, even though that next best guy isn't any good and has no business going there. That's where the pitfalls are when you talk about like, okay, you should never draft for need, right? It's more in that situation where okay, that we're, we're looking only at need and we're kind of removing all the other factors. You can consider need, but it's got to be the situation like, okay, here, edge sucks. This guy isn't worth drafting at this position. So let me move to another position that may be a lesser need, but I can still fill with a better player. So let's get to, there's one more name we want to talk about. And it's just really, th- this is Newman's call your shot player. This is all this is. Th- this is. This is hashtag call your shot. And it is, admittedly, a name that is oh, difficult man. to pronounce. It's tough. But he is a player that we think, and by we, I mean David texts me a couple weeks ago, and he's like, I think I found the next Matt Breida. And by that, uh, we mean a player that is probably going to be undrafted or late drafted, that's going to be picked up by a team and could end up producing at a, a decent level and contributing to a team. Hopefully that team is the Niners. And that is a linebacker from Yale. And that's going to be one Mr. Foyer. I'm going to mess up his name. Oh, we had this earlier. I know we, we had it practiced. earlier. Oh, no, I got it. Foyer Oluwakan. Boom. Nailed it. As far as we're concerned, you can't tell us any different. Nope. Um, so he had an official visit with the Niners, uh, and he's he looks to be pretty damn athletic. I mean, that was really how he got on the radar, right? So he had a visit. Um, George of the PFF analytics team um, is also a fellow 49ers fan. He said, hey, do you see this dude's like pro day numbers? Um, and I was like, no, I didn't even, you know, I see like linebacker, like linebacker, you already have me like, okay, I'm, my attention's not there. You need something really good to get my attention with a <laughs> linebacker. Uh, and so didn't pay much attention to it. He sends me over the, the link to the article that has the pro day numbers in it. And it's like, holy shit. So this is a, a pretty big dude, right? Six, six one, two thirty, four five six forty yard dash four, one, two, 20 yard shuttle, 37 inch vertical. 10 foot three broad jump at his pro day, which would have ranked highly all top, basically top five, six in, in all of those among linebackers that went to the combine. Um, and it shows, I mean, you look at small school guys, right? And we talked about this uh, with Brita and, and some of the other smaller school guys that the 49ers have drafted over the years. And you want to see when you watch them, 
that they just look so out of place, right? They need to be just clearly the best athlete, the best player on the field. And I think that's what you saw with him. Uh, Dude was flying around making plays. I think the most exciting thing was that he made a number of very impressive plays in coverage. Like, really seemed to be a guy was kind of used as as that hybrid linebacker safety type of player um, that, that, again, a lot of teams are looking for that really fits with today's NFL and, and kind of giving you a matchup option against some of the bigger guys that play in the middle of the field. Um, and so I think, yeah, is, is a late round guy. Again, he's mostly athlete at this point. You have all the question marks that come with being a small school guy and not playing top competition and all those things. But is a seventh rounder is a priority free agent, even a six rounder. Hell, like, uh, I think this is a guy that's definitely worth taking a chance on and seeing what happens. Yeah. And I, I of course did the thing that I love to do, which is I went straight to the hype video. So when, when David texted me his name, I was like, well, let's see what's on the YouTubes. <laughs> uh, and it was immediately like hype video, like just a couple of hype videos where it's just it's just some some rap oh, song yeah. as a backing track. I think I watched that one, too. And uh, like the third play in that video, it's like no joke, a minute in dude yeah. makes this like ridiculous diving interception. That's exactly right. I was like, so it was like, OK, within five within five seconds, I've seen three pretty solid downhill hits. And then I see this interception and I'm like. Okay, I'm sold. I'm in. Let's do this. Let's bring this Yaley on. Yeah. So I mean, again, it, it's it's uh you never know. Like he's a late round guy, late round prospect. Um, but is is very intriguing. I think somebody that considering what the 49ers need. Again, you everybody knows that, especially with the Foster stuff, like they're going to need to add some bodies at linebacker. They need some players who can cover on the inside. I think he is a a very very intriguing late round option. Man, so that wraps up this week's episode for, you know, kind of day two and beyond defensive prospects. Definitely a stronger corner class than an edge class. And and at this point, we've only got one show left before the draft where we're going to kind of do a, a general recap and try and put together what we think is the, the best plan for the 49ers, what we think they should do. This is where we're going to talk about trades and where we would mock them what if they what if they trade what if they don't trade all the different scenarios that the Niners could get into next week uh, which we're actually going to record on Monday yes. is actually going to be where we're going to talk about all those things and hopefully put together a blueprint for the 49ers and what they should do in this year's draft on Monday and then on Thursday we're going to record a post first round reaction to hopefully yeah hopefully we're going to record this is like two days before my wedding so correct um if all goes well we should be able to hopefully get a, a round one reaction up that i night. think we'll be okay i think i think we should i'm feeling it. good about it yeah i'm, I'm feeling, feeling pretty okay. good about it too but we'll get a round one reaction after uh after thursday but then after that we're gonna go dark for a bit uh and that's because yeah. mr david newman's getting married uh and then on tuesday may 1st i hop on a plane and go to spain where the rain falls gently on the plane and things of that nature and, and so, yeah, and then we'll come back and we'll get back into football after, of course, David gets back from his honeymoon. Yeah, May's going to be light. So, you know, the, the goal is in between trips there, like our our uh, vacations really butt up against the, each other there. So there's like a few days when you get back before I leave that we're going to hopefully be able to tackle uh, all recap of all the draft stuff. Right. So uh, everything that actually happened there will be a little bit late, but um, that's when you'll get our reactions there. Take another little break. Uh, for for my honeymoon there and then we'll be back up to hopefully weekly basis from from then on through the rest of the year yeah so that does it again for this week uh follow us on twitter you can follow me at better rivals david where can they follow you it'll be at newman nfl so thanks again for tuning in and as always go niners 
Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Carreyou, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there.